From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Today on The Surgery Set, we're joined by Dr. Nathaniel Soper. He's professor and chairman of surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. He got his MD from the University of Iowa, continued on to complete his surgical internship, postdoctoral fellowship, and residency at the University of Utah, then completed a fellowship at Mayo Clinic's Digestive Diseases Unit in Gastroenterology, moved on to Northwestern, where he teaches at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and the Feinberg School of Medicine. His research focuses on applications of minimally invasive surgery for gastrointestinal disease, laparoscopic ultrasound, alternative treatments for gallstones, and motility of the gastrointestinal tract. He's really a titan in the world of minimally invasive surgery. With that, we welcome Dr. Nathaniel Soper to the surgery set. He was interviewed by guest host Daniel Abbott. Thank you for uh, joining us on the surgery set this morning. We are joined by Dr. Nat Soper, professor and chairman of surgery at Northwestern University. It's it's such a privilege to have him here giving grand rounds today. He's an internationally recognized minimally invasive surgeon and a wonderful surgical educator and has blessed us this morning with some knowledge and some data about some of the complexities and the nuances of resident education and autonomy in an increasingly challenging medical, legal, financial, educational environment. So welcome, and thank you very much for your time today. Great. Well, thanks very much, Dan. It was a pleasure to be here. So to start with, you are a leader of faculty and residents, but you have many responsibilities to the institution. How do you advise your faculty to balance the challenges between potential for increased complications, time in the operating room versus productivity? So time is the most precious resource that any of us have, and, and especially in academic medicine, academic surgery, it gets really difficult trying to allocate time, uh, be it time at home, time at work, time doing academics, time doing clinical care, you name it. So it, it, time is something that needs to be prioritized greatly. But the faculty have decided they want to be at a teaching institution. And so, therefore, that has certain attributes to it and responsibilities that people must be aware of. And so, when new faculty come in, we talk to them about the necessity of teaching. And if they're not willing to teach, they'll be taken off of of a teaching service. In terms of actually then policing what goes on and how much autonomy is given in things, it's very difficult to do, and it depends on so many factors like the complexity of the case, the time of day, the number of operations being done. There's so many things that go in that what we try to get across to them is to be cognizant of the need for graded autonomy during a resident's uh, training and to try and do what they can to uh, allow that progression to take place. You alluded in your talk today to the increasingly distant relationship between many faculty and residents due to resident work hours, faculty development, and a number of cases, et cetera, number of factors. How do we eventually put our money where our mouth is to only select the faculty that are the best teachers and develop, as you had suggested, two different services? I mean, are we actually doing that? We are selecting the best teachers for resident education and others to be in more of a private practice setting. So we're not actually doing that yet, but I anticipate that at some time we will have to do that if the number of faculty keeps increasing. Of course, it's a very complex thing because the residents need to be exposed 
to specific types of operations and do specific numbers of cases. So if you have a mismatch between those who are good teachers and the cases that are needed for the residents to graduate, then that's going to cause issues. I think what it will come down to is if there's redundancy of faculty in any given area, we would like to assign residents to those who are more willing to be good teachers and allow more autonomy. I have a personal opinion about this, but I think you've provided some data and given your own concerns that the problem largely lies with us. It's the faculty who are unwilling to to give up their own time or allow for more resident autonomy. I guess I have a question. Is that a fixable problem? Certainly there is an aptitude and a skill set that exists on a spectrum with residents, but also with faculty. And so are some faculty just never going to be great educators, not going to provide autonomy? And and how do you address that? Both, and I would say also inside the OR and outside, I would argue that potentially how we measure and survey resident autonomy in medical decision-making in the office or in the post-operative setting is equally critical to the, the technical component. There's no question that some faculty members are more willing to do that, and it's more part of their psychological makeup than others. I think other times, though, it's a matter of informing the faculty. Often they're not even aware of their shortcomings in this, and sometimes just making them aware will help them change their behavior. But it's something that it's, I mean, it's a learned behavior, and it's very difficult to, you know, change the spots on a leopard. But I think we need to keep looking at this. If we have the data that show that we can compare one faculty member to another, of course, blinded or whatever, but show to a faculty member, look, you are falling down in this compared to others. Surgeons are a competitive lot, and, and I think it will help them at least to, to consider it. And if they're unwilling or unable to change and be part of that system, then again, we as administrators will have to figure out what to do with them. To shift focus to the residents themselves for a bit, certainly the American Board of Surgery is making this transition to more competency-based training, which has the potential to change the number of years that an individual resident compared to their peers may spend in training. What problems or challenges do you foresee in that with the differences between high and low performers and outliers and uh, what does that do to resident confidence? Well, I I think that the competency-based training has a number of challenges facing it and one of them is just workflow and scheduling and how do you do that and certain of the easier things, easier services of operations that are easier to do, then people only spend a few months there during their entire training. How do you allocate the workforce for that? So this this opens up a can of worms. I do think there need to be EPAs. I do think there need to be assessments of competence. And if people are not competent, then we have to think of other pathways for them, no question about it. I think putting in place strictly competency-based areas for each aspect of what a resident does will become so complicated that it's going to be very difficult to actually have that part of the system, at least in the near future. I do see EPAs um, coming down the line, which are just another way of looking at autonomy. I think one could argue that the high performers are the ones that need little attention. They will be successful and do well no matter what environment they're in. In focusing on the the low performers, the low outliers, I would also argue that a lot of that has to do with confidence. Do you have specific thoughts about how to to deal with those, those residents who it's probably very little about aptitude or skill, but maybe about confidence? And part B to that is, do you have thoughts about... The, the gender inequality in terms of confidence uh, and that relationship to skill? Thankfully, many of the surgical personality types don't lack confidence. Often, surgery chooses us rather than the alternative. And so I would say that 
most of those unconfident types have been uh, winnowed out before even the selection process takes place. However, we all know that there are those who are who do lack the confidence. And I think that's a matter of working with them on a regular basis, identifying it early on, and then being able to work with them. Often they don't realize that it's not a sign of disrespect to be appropriately aggressive in terms of how you handle yourself, how you ask to be allowed to do things, and, and things like that. Whereas in, in certain cultural uh, settings, particularly um, I've seen among the Asians, often there's a subservience that's built into them that we have to break through so that they can be more self-serving and going about what they need to do for their education. I have not seen a huge gender difference in terms of the confidence level at this point, but I think it needs to be approached irregardless of the gender. You showed some data that... 30% of general surgery chief residents were, by the nomenclature you used, not competent to do a colectomy. When that happens, what do you do with those 30%? That is a third of all residents finishing. Well, again, this is preliminary data. Just have it now, and there are a lot of discussions now underway about how we will react to that data. So is it, um, is it the, the fact that they're not performing well, or is it just the fact that the faculty are not letting them have the autonomy when they're doing those cases? And as we talked about in the discussion after my presentation this morning, often uh, what we see is that there's a, an imbalance between the number of trainees and faculty such that it's almost impossible to allow supervision only because the faculty member has to be scrubbed in to help because of the numbers of individuals available. So the supervision only aspect of autonomy, I think, is going to be a difficult one for us to solve just based on numbers. And that's why we talk about the meaningful autonomy also being the passive help as well as, um, as, well as the supervision only, because often that's the nature of the beast that you, you can't have enough people in the operating room such that the chief resident or the senior resident can be assisted by a junior resident. A lot of these data and a lot of these opinions come from faculty. What do you hear from the residents about ways to fix these problems? Well, the residents have actually been excited about this system, or at least initially were, because I think it did shine the spotlight on this complex relationship, but also make it that the faculty now at least need to acknowledge what they're allowing in terms of, of the autonomy. I think a lot of the opinions and the data that you're showing are from the faculty perspective, but you know the residents may be a silent majority in all this and have their own thoughts. And so do, have residents come to you with proposals about this is what we think will help us with autonomy, either whether that's working with certain individuals, the structure of an OR day, the structure of their schedule, apprenticeships, which was something that Northwestern was uh, wonderful in, in pioneering. 15 years ago? So at this point, the residents really haven't come to me specifically as a result of this program uh, making suggestions for this. You know, we, we talk to the residents a lot in terms of what we can do to make things better. They certainly do love the apprenticeship program because that really gets you to that level of one-on-one -on -one interaction, which is one of the things that really engenders trust, which again is a big part of the autonomy thing. And when we have big teams of residents with huge numbers of faculty, you don't get that one-on-one -on -one time to develop that trust, or it's much more difficult than it, than it was in, in years past. So we've not gotten to that point where um, we actually have action items brought up by the residents as a result of the simple system.
Unless you have any other thoughts, we want to thank you for your time again and uh, your expertise in guiding all of us. Well, thanks, Dan. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I, I do feel that it's critically important that we as surgeons and as the surgical profession figure out how we can do this to allow general surgery residents the graded autonomy that they need during their training program to feel comfortable at the end of five years to go out and practice at least bread and butter general surgery. That's what we need to be able to do. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the surgery set or have suggestions on how we can make our program better, please provide us with your feedback. You can rate our podcast and leave your comments in iTunes, Podbean, or Stitcher. Or you can send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. Tune in next time when I'm joined by Dr. Brett Michelotti. He's a plastic surgeon right here at UW-Madison, specializing in hand and microvascular surgery. We talk about some of the microvascular surgery he does, super microvascular surgery, I should say, where he's connecting lymph vessels to tiny, tiny veins using suture you can't see. So we talk about how he does that, and it is totally fascinating. We'll see you then. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Annie Erickson. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher, and of course you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery or at J.E. Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks. We hope you check back soon.